This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. The power of fear is very powerful. We chew on it. Our minds chew on fear. The, the concept, the idea of the unknown, the what if, will paralyze us from making choices that can save our lives. So we have to remember in medicine and in science, we don't make our decisions based on emotions and fear. And so when it comes to the vaccine, try not to let that sense of fear and emotion paralyze us and the fear of the unknown when we know that COVID-19 can kill, we know that the risks are astronomical, and we know that the vaccine will save lives. And we need to base our decisions on facts and science and evidence and try our best to control our fear and emotion. And so make the decisions with your clinicians, your physicians and scientists and epidemiologists, the ones who know about this, not your friend who, you know, heard a rumor or what we call anecdotal evidence. Our minds will chew on it and they'll grip on it and they won't let it go. Hello from The Lincoln Project. And welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Nearly every aspect of life in the United States was impacted by the coronavirus pandemic in 2020, and it continues to shape the early part of 2021. A few months ago, we talked to three emergency room doctors about their experiences treating coronavirus patients, and I wanted to catch up with a couple of them to talk about how the last few months have looked for them, and the new vaccines, and the continued impact of COVID-19. So, returning to the podcast, we have Dr. Dan Barkoff, who is an emergency medicine physician and an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Vermont. He's a researcher in cardiac arrest and substance abuse and a graduate of Harvard Medical School. Dan is also an ex-Navy SEAL and a founder of Veterans for Responsible Leadership. Dr. Barkoff, it's so great to have you back. Great to be back, Ron. And Dr. Natasha Kathuria, an ER physician based in Austin, Texas. And Natasha is a global health specialist who completed her fellowship at Mount Sinai Medical Center and her master's of public health in epidemiology at Columbia University. She's also a medical journalist whose work has appeared in outlets like ABC News, CBS, Fox, and Business Insider. Dr. Kathuria, thank you again for making the time to be with us today. It's always a pleasure. Happy to be here. So it's been about three months since the last time we spoke, and I thought we'd start by checking in with both of you about how your day-to-day -day work treating patients has looked since then. Dr. Kathuria? Things have definitely changed. You know, uh, I'm based in Austin. I work in cities kind of all over central Texas, and 
things have changed and it's feeling a lot like it did in the summer when we hit our surge down here. Um, and, and it's it's definitely hitting us now. Our ICUs are near full capacity. We're having a difficult time admitting patients. Uh, we're holding a lot of patients in the ERs. And, you know, some of the hospitals I'm working in are already canceling elective cases again. You know, so we're going backwards uh, big time right now. It's It's been a tough, tough ride. And Dan, how about you? Unlike Natasha, I'm fortunately at the other end of the spectrum. Um, Vermont's done quite well uh, with COVID, probably the best in the nation. Um, but even even since coming back from the Thanksgiving break, we've had a, an uptick in COVID cases in our ED as well. Um, we've had a, a dramatic increase in deaths in our state. So things have definitely picked up uh, in, a, in a big way in the last 60 days, I would say. So some of the most encouraging news from late 2020 was the announcement of several effective coronavirus vaccines. And of course, some of the most concerning news is now the emergence of at least two new mutant strains, one originally found in the UK and I think the other in South Africa. Can you first talk about how important the vaccines developed to fight the original strain will be in fighting the virus and saving lives. And then about these new strains and to what degree, if any, these vaccines will be effective against them. The short answer is the vaccines that have received emergency use authorizations, there's one from Pfizer uh, and there's one from Moderna. Uh, They both were approved for emergency use in December of this year um, by the FDA. And they're both two-dose vaccines. So you get an initial uh, injection and then you followed a couple of weeks later by a booster dose. The Pfizer one um, was 90% effective uh, against coronavirus and the Moderna was 94%. But what that means is important. So the vaccines, when when we say that number 90%, mm-hmm. uh, what that's talking about is symptoms of COVID. Uh, so serious symptoms of COVID. So it's 90% effective in even if you get COVID, you do not develop severe respiratory failure and, and all of that kind of thing. So there's a lot that's still unknown about the, the ramifications of that. For example, we don't know if you can still transmit the virus to other people mm. if you've gotten the vaccine. We just know that it keeps you from getting really, really sick and hopefully from dying. So that's that 90 and 94% number, it's important uh, to understand that that means you could still potentially get COVID, but you're going to do a lot better than you would otherwise. I have two follow-up questions. One, I assume that the reason we don't know is simply because there haven't been any studies on a vaccinated population yet, because we don't have a vaccinated population yet. 100% correct. So, I mean, this is uh, unprecedented in human history, what's been done. Um, You know, the... Well, it feels like a long time to wait for a year. And, you know, if you have sick or you've lost someone to COVID, um, it's, it's too little too late. But uh, we've never had a vaccine um, that, was, that was created, went through phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials in this amount of time. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the crazy things, I, I believe Moderna is the same, but when you look at the Pfizer vaccine, as soon as that virus came out of Wuhan and it was the RNA of the virus was sequenced, as soon as we knew that, within weeks, you know, both Pfizer and Moderna and several other companies had filed uh, patents on these, on these vaccines. These, these patents were filed in January of 2020. 
Wow. Um, so, you know, it's what's been done is remarkable. It's, it's a testament to human ingenuity. It just occurred to me that if these patents were filed in January of 2020, and yet it took the president of the United States months and months after that to admit that it even existed, we were in a much worse place than, I mean, science was far, far ahead of politics even then. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree with that. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a testament to, uh, you know, in a way, it's a testament to capitalism, right? You know, I mean, in addition to the humanitarianism, um, you've got a, a huge financial incentive to create this vaccine that half the world's going to get. But yeah, the, the, these patents were filed in January of 2020. So they, they got the, you know, the genetic information of this virus and they got to work. Wow. So Dr. Kathuria, one of the things Dr. Barkov mentioned is that we don't know whether or not, essentially, the, the vaccine is effective against the development of symptoms. What is the difference between the protection against the development of symptoms and the protection against actually contracting the virus? Because I think this is, may become a point of confusion for a lot of people as they go to get the vaccine, hopefully, in the coming months. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right. So pretty much what the vaccine's doing is it's triggering your immune system uh, to react to the virus if you contract the virus. So if you contract COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, then your immune system is already going to be prepped and ready. It's going to have that messenger RNA. It's going to have the instructions. It's going to know how to fight the virus. And the goal is that you don't even get a substantial viral load, that you're able to hit it hard get rid of the virus, not feel anything and be completely fine. That's the goal. Um, you know, there's obviously certain elements of efficacy there, whether or not some patients will still get COVID. You know, it's not a hundred percent effective. Mm -hmm. So some patients will still get COVID-19 and will still get symptoms. Very, very, very few, um, you know, maybe 5% of patients. And at the same time, what we don't know is the patients that don't ever get symptoms, are they, do they still function as asymptomatic carriers? And the hope is that maybe that does happen, but we're hopeful that their viral load will be so low that they won't be as infective and as contagious as if they were asymptomatic carriers without the vaccine. You know, we see that with influenza. For example, if you get the influenza vaccine, you contract influenza and you get sick with the flu, uh, you're much, much less likely to get critically ill, right. be hospitalized, go into the ICU. Uh, you still may get it. Um, of course, this is a different vaccine, a different virus, a whole different you know ball game that we're playing. And already the vaccine is astronomically better than the flu vaccine. Wow. So we're hopeful that this is great. But you know, you know, as, as Dan said, moving forward. Things aren't changing too much right now. We're getting the vaccine rollout and it's actually something that we've been reminding our healthcare workers that regardless of if you have the first dose, the second dose, or where you are in the process, your PPE requirements are not changing. You have to use the same precautions with every patient and you need to use the same precautions in your personal life. Um, 
and you know social distance and wear a mask until we have some more reassurance with our epidemiologic data that things are moving in the right direction. So speaking of the flu, how long do you think it will be or what do we need to learn before we're going to know whether or not the COVID vaccine is going to be like the flu vaccine for most Americans, where it's something that we get every every year. Essentially, there's a there's a new strain, and we take an educated guess as to which strain we think is going to be the dominant strain in the, in America, and then we create vaccines every year that most people get. First of all, do you think that's the direction vaccination against COVID nineteen is going, and what do we need to learn in order to know that? That's a tough question. There's a, there's a lot. So the, the flu is, it's a virus which frequently mutates and it's, it's mutating all the time. And um, we don't really know how fast coronavirus is going to mutate. And we also don't know how long this particular vaccine is going to give you uh, immunity. To give you an example, you know, like you said, it's the flu vaccine is a guess every year. They choose, uh, you know, a couple of variants that I think are going to be most common, and then that's what they decide to make in a, in a huge batch. So it's a prediction. Um, with COVID, this is a reaction to you know this pandemic, which has been sweeping around the world. So they, these two vaccines um, are good for COVID nineteen, right? But you know. It's a fair question. I mean, if if COVID twenty happens, mm-hmm. um, you know, where where do we go from there? And the the short answer is we don't know yet. Um, you know, one of the things we brought up earlier was the um, the issue of you know now there's some uh, mutant strains which appear to be more rapidly transmissible. We don't know really anything about the the uh, immunity offered by these vaccines to these new strains. That that just has not been studied yet. So there have been a couple of stories about healthcare workers who are hesitant to get vaccinated or who won't get the vaccine. And Dr. Fauci even said that he was concerned about people, especially healthcare workers, being hesitant to get the vaccine. Now, this term healthcare workers is a pretty broad term. Dr. Katharia, can you talk about what you've seen from other doctors and medical professionals at our hospitals about their willingness to get vaccinated and what's behind this data? term healthcare worker is a very, very broad term, just as you mentioned. And some of these headlines have been a little bit frustrating to the medical community because they are misleading. And as you can imagine, the anti-vax movement is using this um, in a predatory way to get people to fear vaccines. When in fact, when you look at the numbers, for example, in one of the ERs that I work at, um, if you look at the breakdown of the numbers, the physicians are well over 90% compliant with the vaccine. And keep that keep in mind that a lot of them are pregnant, a lot of them are nursing. Uh, we mm-hmm. actually have some that are on chemotherapy and immunosuppressants, and we're still over 90% uh, compliance. So just to give some reassurance, and I think change the narrative of that headline that has been spreading, it's that, yes, the broad term healthcare workers has been labeled and has been, you know, showing the data in a skewed, very skewed way. But in reality, the physicians, the clinicians, especially those in the ERs and ICUs who actually understand the pathophysiology of COVID in depth, the effect on the body, um, see it every day, and also who understand vaccines and vaccine safety and vaccine efficacy and know how mRNA vaccines work. Um, You know, we're inundated with this all day and reading about it all day and constantly updated. We are extremely eager to get the vaccines and there is no hesitancy 
Um, there are some physicians, just as there are some people in every group who, you know, just want to take their time in making the decision. And that is okay. Um, that that's normal. That's anticipated. But you know, when you're looking at 90 plus percent, it's a little bit different. The, the ones who know the most about this virus and the ones who know the most about vaccines are not hesitating. Mm. I'll, I'll say it like that. It's, it's that we're, you know, we're really pushing um, to fight through the repercussions of the politicization of COVID-19, of masking, and that naturally has trickled over into the vaccines. And uh, it's, you know, we do see that trend. Um, there was an ICU doc in Houston who was talking about this recently, about his nurses and how about half of his nurses in his ICU unit were hesitant to get the vaccine and how he was extremely frustrated and that, you know, these are, you know, they're caring for COVID patients and they could easily be, you know, getting it from, he wants to protect his nurses. And, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of misinformation we have to fight against. And we have to remember that the anti-vax movement, it's, they're, they're on their A game. Like they're, they're coming strong. They're targeting ethnic minorities. They're targeting, you know, people all over the country right now. And, you know, they have their ulterior motives and we need to be really conscious of that and really just focus on the science and the evidence. Yeah. So, Dr. Barkov, I want to talk about this phenomenon and the misinformation for a second and the politics of it, because it strikes me as odd that the president of the United States is the one who has been so eager to get a vaccine rolling out to people for so long, but he's also been the one behind so much of the misinformation about COVID from the very beginning. And so we know that what he really wanted was a feather in his cap. We know that he wanted to be responsible for the vaccine. And we now know that it was science and capitalism that were more responsible. But how do you how do you parse the difference between the sort of the stronghold that the anti-vax movement seems to be gaining against Trump himself, who most of these people voted for and support, who actively wanted the vaccine, it's out. Um, it, it, they don't seem to reconcile with one another. It's further evidence of the the failure of leadership. I mean, COVID from a leadership perspective was such low hanging fruit. I mean, you could you could write it out on a cocktail napkin, the national response, and it would be pretty darn good. And, you know, if you have folks who, you know, if, if you have, if Donald Trump had released a line of make America great again masks and Melania had walked out and, you know, they were stylish and cool and they passed him out at the rallies, you know, why didn't he do that? He, you know, it, it was so, such a basic, easy win for him to have an effective pandemic response. And he, he didn't. You know, as far particularly as far as the vaccine, um, yeah, I think you're starting to see, you know, politically, you're starting to see some of the, you know, the real grip that paranoia and conspiracy has on, you know, a large swath of our political electorate. I mean, you know, the yeah. QAnon, we have members of Congress who literally believe what QAnon believes, right? So it's very frustrating. Um, you know, back to what Natasha was saying. Uh, you know, as far as healthcare workers who who wanted to get the vaccine, I just want to throw this out there. My wife, who's also a physician, 
is part of a Facebook group, a physician moms group, and I'll give them a little plug. But um, there was a meme going around that said, for healthcare providers, I want this vaccine so bad, you can give it to me in my eyeball. <laughs> you know, that's kind of that's kind of how I felt that's about the best it. I was you like, have no nerve endings there, right? I suppose it wouldn't right. be painful. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, you know, I agree. It's if you had a strategy for moving patients to hospitals where there was capacity and you had a strategy to vaccinate the population as quickly as possible and you followed the you know the general public health measures that people from day 1 have been saying to wear a mask and to you know not gather in large crowds we'd be in a much better place yeah so can you speaking of masks i just want to i want to clarify for our listeners a bit because there have been numerous articles about why people who get vaccinated will still need to social distance, will still need to wear masks. And in fact, there was a piece run by the New York Times, I think it was just yesterday, about a survey they did among epidemiologists. They asked them essentially what behaviors they would change, what behaviors they wouldn't change, and how, essentially how conservative they'll be with their behavior after they get vaccinated. And it was it was eye-opening just how many of them are, are going to maintain the same very isolating protocols that they've that they've been using all year. So can you talk about why both the vaccination and reducing exposure to the virus both will be important at least in the at least in the the medium term? It's basically what we we're just talking about, Ron. I mean, the truth is we don't know if you can transmit it to other people. So there's there's two there's two threads there. One is, you know, if this is a 90% effective vaccine, who's to say you're in the 90% and not the 10%, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's one. So personal self-preservation has a piece in this. But then, you know, the larger question is, you know, do you have a patriotic or, or even ethical duty to, to other people to, you know, not, you know, even if you're protected, you're not going to end up in the ICU on high flow. What about that guy at the gas station who's, you know, 70 years old working behind the counter? Yeah. Um, you know, you still got to wear the mask because, it's preventing you from transmitting it to other people. Yeah. Um, that's where the effectiveness lies. I mean, it, there is a degree of self-protection in, in wearing a mask, but more more broadly, it's preventing you from from coughing or you know just exhaling. And uh, we know that this is an aerosolized virus, um, and it's it spread. And and masks are protective. Um, there's a pretty broad scientific consensus on that point. I mean, if you literally did not care about your fellow man, and you didn't care if you were spreading COVID all over the place, mm-hmm. don't wear a mask. Um, but I, I don't think most people are like that. I think if I think most people, given a choice, will try to protect their their fellow people. So in mid-December, the Kaiser Family Foundation released a poll showing that 71% of Americans would definitely or probably get the vaccine. That's up from 63% in September. Most people who won't take the vaccine said they're worried about the side effects, uh, the fact that the vaccine is new, they're concerned that politics played too much of a role in the development process, or that they just don't trust that the government made sure it was safe and effective. And I would note earlier... In the summer, I believe, there was an there was an AP poll that found essentially half of respondents said they would get a vaccine and and 20% said they won't get one and 31% weren't weren't sure. So essentially more than half of the respondents said they won't or weren't sure whether they would get one. That was from the summertime. So I think public attitudes have changed quite a lot from where they were earlier in the year. But 
What do you say to someone who has concerns about taking that va- the vaccine, especially considering that, from what I understand, Dr. Fauci is recommending that 80, 85 percent is the threshold that we need to, to achieve uh, herd immunity? That's exactly right. We have to achieve at least 80 percent um, compliance with this vaccine. And just to go back to what you were discussing earlier about, you know, how do we get back to normality Mm -hmm. and people wanting to give up wearing masks and social distancing as soon as they they get the vaccine, to get back to normal life that we all so desperately want to get back to, um, we we have to get to a point where COVID-19 is under control. And that takes multiple different methods to get there. It's not just we get the vaccine and we're done. The goal is to get COVID-19 away and down and not transmitting person to person as virulently as it is. And to do that, we have to get the vaccine and get to that point. It's not just vaccinating everyone. It's getting the virus to go away. And that, you know, it's a multi-step process. It's getting the vaccine, getting the second dose, making sure enough people get it and making sure that we're protecting those who are highest at risk and making sure this our super spreaders are getting the vaccine. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of super spreaders are not falling into these high risk categories because a lot of them are young. They're 20 years old and 30 right. years old going to bars or they're working in you know healthcare facilities and nursing homes and after going to weddings, which we've seen happen. And Or they're you know, going to Puerto Vallarta. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but we yeah. also know, Dr. Kathuria, that, that uh, from what I understand, please correct me if this is wrong, but we don't really know why younger people seem to be getting very severe cases of COVID and many of them are dying because we were thinking earlier in the year that it was mostly older people and that then that mostly became translated or became understood, I think, by by many people that young people aren't at risk at all. But in fact, there are lots of young people getting sick and dying. Yes, exactly. No, no age group, zero age groups are immune to this virus. Any age group can get it and any age group can die from it, period. That's a fact. Um, But what we do know is that the risk goes up with age. So if you're 80 years old and you get it, you're much exponentially higher risk than, say, an eight-year-old. But it doesn't mean that every eight-year-old in America, if they got COVID, that we would have zero deaths from COVID in eight-year-olds. It just means the likelihood is lower. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need people to take this seriously because even though proportionately... Proportionally, if we look at the data, 40% of deaths are in our elderly. But what we're not capturing there is the morbidity. It's not Mm. just about mortality. It's not just about who's dying. It's about who's getting affected, how many people are getting hospitalized, how many people are missing work for two weeks, sometimes up to six weeks, how many people are getting long hauler syndrome where they've got symptoms for months. You know, there's so many, how many people are getting blood clots from this, um, permanent lung damage. There's a lot, a long track and reinfections, right? And to talk a little bit about the fear, I know you asked earlier, like, what do you say to people who are afraid to get the vaccine? And I think this is really important for everyone. It is normal to be afraid. Right now, it is very normal to be afraid of pretty much anything right now with COVID in the air. But it is normal to be afraid of a vaccine that is new with new technology and, you know, against a virus that we're, we're still learning about. These fears are normal. Um, we, we, 
we have to meet that with compassion and we can't shame people for being afraid because all it's going to do is push them in the opposite direction. Um, but what we do want everyone to realize, and this is something that is well studied um, in psychology and psychiatry and medicine, the power of fear mm. is very powerful. Mm-hmm. We chew on it. Our minds yeah. chew on fear. The The concept, the idea of the unknown, the what if will paralyze us from making choices that can save our lives. So we have to remember in medicine and in science, we don't make our decisions based on emotions and fear. Mm -hmm. That is exactly why we're not supposed to treat friends and family because emotions and fear get involved and study after study have shown that we give worse care to the ones that we love the most because we can't overcome that fear and that emotion. It's just, it's not in the average human being. It's not a conscious choice. And so when it comes to the vaccine, try not to let that sense of fear and emotion paralyze us and the fear of the unknown when we know that COVID-19 can kill and it does kill. We know that the risks are astronomical and we know that the vaccine can save your life and it will save lives. And we need to base our decisions on facts and science and evidence and try our best to control our fear and emotion and, you know, and put politics aside and put, you know, these get off social media um, where you're you're being targeted. If you don't know, you are, everyone (laughs) is. Um, So make the decisions with your clinicians, your physicians and scientists and epidemiologists, the ones who know about this, not your friend who, you know, heard a rumor or what we call anecdotal evidence like Sally down the street had this story and that must be true because our minds will chew on it and they'll grip on it and they won't let it go yeah oh my god I just want to take whatever the audio equivalent of a highlighter is to everything that you just said that answer could apply to so many things because it's so it's so true and so wise Dan what would you say to folks I was just kind of reflecting on what, what Natasha was just saying. I mean, you know, that probably explains in part why, you know, healthcare providers such as physicians are so eager to get this vaccine, right? Is, is you know, the fear for me is that I get COVID and end up in the ICU on high flow and then mm. I get tubed and then, you know, high I flow. die. What's high flow? So just oxygen, like really kind okay. of powerful oxygen. Okay. Um, you know, so... I've seen that happen. Uh, I know Natasha's seen that happen. Um, you know, so that's always kind of in the back of our mind. And so you tell me I can get a, sh- you know, two shots in the arm and, you know, my chances of, of that outcome go down by 94%. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for those, those two shots in the arm. And, you know, it, it, a lot of, a lot of what happens in healthcare, you know, especially with this pandemic and, you know, this is a, a long conversation that'll have to be, um, you know, for another time for legislators and, and things like this. I think, I think in many ways, the public is a little bit misinformed in part because of uh, patient privacy laws. And, you know, we've got this thing called HIPAA in this country, which mm-hmm. is very well-intentioned and very necessary and, and very good. And it protects you if you go to the doctor that, you know, that doctor can't um, take a picture of you when you're sick or, uh, you know, talk about you to, you know, his uh, spouse when he goes home or, or what have you. But an unintentional effect of that is, 
people aren't seeing, um, you know, these cyanotically blue patients yeah. who are struggling for breath and, you know, they're young and they're healthy and, and, you know, we're at our wits end trying to come up with something to help these people. And, you know, they just, it's just not in their consciousness. I mean, you know, people talk about the Vietnam war and, and, you know, the, the nation turned against Vietnam when Walter Cronkite mm -hmm. started putting images of the Tet Offensive on the news. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't happened with COVID, um, you know, in, in the way that I think really would, would change a lot of people's perspective. So we spent a lot of time in our last discussion talking about how the coronavirus has disproportionately impacted minority communities. Now, according to the same Kaiser Family Foundation poll, only 62% of Black respondents said they'd get the coronavirus vaccine if it was determined to be safe and available for free. And Black respondents were more likely to be concerned about the side effects and how new the vaccine is than were white respondents. So Dan, can you talk about some of the underlying issues within the healthcare system that could lead to this distrust and about how this could create an even bigger difference in how much the pandemic has impacted minority communities in the U.S.? The short answer is African-Americans are right to be hesitant to trust big medicine. Um, historically, we've done, you know, this is backed up by multiple studies over decades that um, they've gotten worse care for the same conditions. And there's also egregious examples from America's not-so-distant past. You've got the Tuskegee experiments, Henrietta Lacks. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a number of kind of instances of truly unethical clinical practices and, and research experiments being done on, on African-Americans. And I would imagine as a community, it's, it's difficult to trust an institution that says, uh, no, we've got this new thing and we're going to roll it out. Many of my African-American colleagues who are physicians now, you know, getting the vaccine and kind of being that bridge between medicine and a minority community uh, is, is critically important at this point. The fact of the matter is, is that African-American patients in general are, are, you know, like I said, right to, to, to be hesitant. But, um, you know, a lot of that trust is going to be built in, in individual one-on-one -on -one encounters. And a lot of it is, is reinforced by seeing African-American physicians and healthcare workers getting the vaccine. It's, it's, a, it's inarguable that uh, communities of, of color and recent immigrant communities are being hit harder by this, this virus. Mm -hmm. Up here in Vermont, um, you know, largely you know, almost almost completely Caucasian state. Um, we have several refugee communities. Um, we've got uh, Somalis and Nepalese folks up here um, who are being disproportionately affected by this coronavirus. Some of that might be a genetic component. Some of it might be, um, you know, living in, in large uh, multi-generational families inside, uh, you know, a single structure and sort of ease of transmission. But these mm. are these are real you know, issues that um, the health community would be wise, I think, to, to really make a, an effort to address. Yeah. And Dr. Katharia, I want to give you a chance to respond as well. Yeah, this is something that I'm very concerned about and our entire medical community is very concerned about is how disproportionately this virus is affecting our racial minority populations and not just in contracting the virus, but the mortality and how many of these minority populations, how many people are dying of this virus. And now we have this vaccine and we've, you know, we've got a light at the end of the tunnel and there's mistrust and hesitancy to get the vaccine. Um, and, and again, just like I mentioned before, 
that is totally understandable. That fear, that frustration, that you know, hesitancy, especially from Black communities is understandable. It's almost, it's expected. We expected it from the get-go. Um, Dr. Fauci, actually, when uh, the vaccine, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine came out, when we first were going through emergency use authorizations and Moderna's vaccine finally got its EUA, you know, he came out and very proudly gave a lot of credit to the Black community because, uh, one of the lead scientists, Dr. Corbett, um, she who worked for the NIH, is being hailed as a hero. She mm-hmm. was on the front lines and really is responsible for a big part of Moderna's vaccine being pushed through. And, you know, that that's part of the Black community. And so we're hoping that these stories of, you know, really giving attention to all the Black scientists and the Black physicians yeah. and who are behind this complete, you know, just total win in the scientific community that, you know, we're in this together. This is not um, anything that we're trying to, you know, give preference to one race or another. In fact, it's the opposite. We're really pushing, especially from an epidemiologic perspective and a political perspective, pushing to cover those who are most at risk, Mm -hmm. who are our Black and Hispanic populations and actually cover them first and really try to get them out there and get vaccinated because we need to protect the vulnerable. And right now they are vulnerable and we need to just inform. Uh, We're not here to tell people what to do. We don't do that in medicine. You don't show up to the hospital and we say, you need this. I'm giving this to you. Here's your IV. Here's your medicine. I'm doing it. Uh, What we do is we do what's called shared decision-making. We inform the patient. We give them uh, the power to make the decision, but it's our responsibility to inform them to the best of our abilities to make the decision that will save their life. And at the end of the day, it's their choice. And we're not going to push people to do anything they don't feel comfortable with, but we need to do a better job of really just crushing this misinformation. I mean, half, I mean, I'm sure Dan agrees with this, but you know, we go to work all day and we're fighting against COVID Yeah, and we're trying to save people from COVID. And then we come home and we fight misinformation and they're equally as difficult for us. <laughs> yeah. I want to just talk about the rollout really quickly and in terms of, of what people can expect before we zoom out and, and talk about uh, the global scale here. So what can Americans expect over the next several months um, throughout 2021 when the vaccine begins to roll out? Like states are determining what groups can get the vaccine and in what order uh, individual states are. But can you help us understand who should expect to be able to get the vaccine and when after the medical community, after healthcare workers are vaccinated, what happens then and how will those decisions be made? The CDC, you know, has kind of issued guidance to to individual states, and I, I'm not sure how binding that guidance is, Ron. To be honest with you, but you know, so there's this group of, you know, they call it one A. It's kind of silly that they have one A, one B, and one C instead of just one, two, and three. <laughs> but um, so one A groups were all the all the you know kind of frontline healthcare workers. So we've got our EMS crews, we've got our emergency room workers, we've got people who are working on the COVID floors in the hospital, we've got people who are working in the COVID. ICUs in the hospital. The other group um, that's been disproportionately affected are, are just the elderly. So Natasha had mentioned earlier the nursing homes. So they're also in that one eight group. So um, you know, I was reading something that 
a quarter million of the 350,000 who've died from this pandemic in the U.S. are over the age of 65. And I can tell you, part of the reason that Vermont has been so successful is these medical directors of these nursing homes who bit the bullet and didn't transport these patients to the hospital when they were DNR, DNI. And um, it, it saved uh, the community countless spread. So, you know, you've got the elderly institutionalized folks and the healthcare workers, they were 1A. And then 1B, we start to get into other healthcare workers who aren't necessarily frontline. So maybe this is your, you know, your pediatrician or, or someone who works in an office, things like that. And then it's it's going to be age stratified. So um, if I recall correctly, and I'm not 100% sure on this, I think it's people over the age of 75 are the next in line. So, you know, what that should look like in a perfect world would be, you know, you're over the age of 75, you get a phone call from your primary care director's office saying, hey, on Tuesday, we can give you this vaccine if you want it. You know, we've only given out about, I think today it's like a 4.3 I think is million doses of the vaccine as of today. Uh, that's of the 20 million goal that was set mm. for a month. So wow. there's been a lot of issues with vaccine rollout and the guidelines were set by the CDC. They, and that's all they can do. They were not given any power to step right, in or right. to do anything. So the guidelines are set and they're given to the states and the states were distributed the vaccines and then those vaccines were given to hospitals and for-profit pharmacies. And, you know, there's a lot of issues that go into that. There's also many doses per vial. So if you don't use up the vial, those doses will expire. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, shortcuts being taken, um, you know, that have frustrated the medical community. Actually, a big issue happened in Stanford where uh, the ER physicians were getting the vaccine after dermatologists. And they were like, you know, physicians doing telemedicine were getting it, you know, first in line and they had to publicly come out and make an apology. And, you know, even at the hospital level, there are issues uh, with vaccine rollout, um, but overwhelmingly, you know, improvements are being made. And I think the big issue here is that we don't have a national system for this yeah. and that yeah. it's kind of just like a here are the vaccines. Yeah. Good luck to your state and your state and your state. And let's see who does it well. And every state has had its cluster of problems. Um, there's also a lot of ageism with this vaccine, right? You know, you've got technology involved. Your 75-year-old is not going to be at the same level of understanding technology and being able to figure out where to get the vaccine as your 30-year-old yeah. or your 20-year-old. Yeah. And so, you know, there it's not, there's no central portal there's no uh it's it's not how we envisioned it happening to if say only the least. we had a national coronavirus response task force that might be capable of providing some leadership um, who'd have thought well, <laughs> well, no. ron, i mean ron ron like i like i said earlier um the patents were filed in january right. 2020 I, that is just so they've had a year to figure out baffling well, yes. like, just, I mean, it's infuriating. They, they knew this was coming. <sighs> We've exhausted that topic, I think. Right. And <laughs> before I let you go, I want to take a few minutes for us to think about the pandemic globally. In early December, Trump signed an executive order prioritizing providing doses of the corona vaccine. Uh, Dr. Kathuria, how much should vaccination on a global scale 
factor into U.S. policy at this point, considering how U.S. cases are by far the highest in the world? You know, can you help us understand if this policy of the U.S. only vaccinating people from the U.S. makes sense from a medical perspective? As a global health specialist, this is my forte, I guess. This is what I think about all the time. So America is unfortunately number one right now in how bad we're doing with COVID. So we must prioritize our own country. Obviously, we need to get things under control here. We've got NGOs that are you know, on the ground. I mean, Doctors Without Borders has been deployed multiple times in our own country to help. To, in America. Just, it's so bizarre. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. To help with this virus. And it's been a really difficult journey for our country. We've made so many mistakes from the get-go on a political level. And it's just trickled down into our ability to care for patients. So we must prioritize our own country. But at the same time, this is a this is not a time where we don't have people flying and don't have people traveling. There is still constant movement of human beings from country mm-hmm. to country to country. And we have to have a plan. We have to work uh, as a team with other countries. We need to focus on low income and developing countries uh, and countries that are being disproportionately affected and help them because this is not a political move. This is a virus and we have to see the world as one country right now. Mm. We're not used to doing that in America Mm. and we have to start getting used to that. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to destroy this virus and herd immunity is not going to last very long. Um, So we need to, you know, there's there's multiple avenues. There's not a shortcut. There's not one clear equation uh, to really address this. And, you know, we have to, to, tackle everything at once, obviously prioritizing our own country right now, not just because it's our country, but because we're doing so terrible and we've reached 350,000 deaths. Um, So, you know, we we have to just do the right thing, but also think on a global scale because it's going to serve us in the long run as well. Right. And begin to work with our partners again on the global. I'm so glad you brought that up because over the holiday weekend, CBS This Morning reported that countries holding about 14% of the global population control 53% of the global supply of vaccines. So how important will globally equitable vaccine distribution be to returning to something closer to normal? It's going to be critical. You know, we have to keep our healthcare systems globally alive and to keep our healthcare systems globally alive we have to equitably distribute this vaccine uh, so that no system is being overwhelmed at the same time we want to lessen the chance of this virus changing and COVID-20 and 21 and 22 mm. happening and then coming back into America and um, that takes a global effort and So far, we've had some element of that, especially in other countries. Uh, And we need to really, you know, this sense of American exceptionalism that we've just really shot ourselves in the foot. We are the exception. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's true. Very true. Uh, Yeah. Before I let you both go, and this has been a very helpful, very enlightening conversation. So thank you. There was one thing, Dr. Kathuria, that you brought up on our first conversation, and that was about the excess death cost that we haven't and hadn't um, even begun to think about at that point. And so I just wanted to revisit that, um, that idea and see 
you know, how you're thinking about that now, Dr. Barkov, how you're thinking about that now as we go into 2021, because it's still an issue that isn't getting very much attention. Maybe it will later this year, maybe it will next year, but why don't you um, just remind our listeners what you mean by that and and how it's it's playing into your thought process now. Yeah, absolutely. So pretty much the only data that we really had published uh, was from New York City, the excess death rate there um, during the height of the pandemic when they were the epicenter. And we saw an exceptional high excess death rate. And what that is, is it's people who don't have COVID-19 who are dying. So your heart attacks, your strokes, your traumatic injuries, things that you would, we have some expectation of what our mortality of these things will be every year. And once New York City became the epicenter of COVID, not only were more people dying of COVID, but more people were dying of non-COVID related things. And these are not comorbidities. These are not people who have COVID and died of something related of some other, you know, pre-existing condition, correct? Correct. These are patients, nothing to do with COVID, no infection with COVID. They were dying from other things like, you know, extreme high blood pressure and hypertensive emergencies, heart attacks, strokes, traumas, sepsis, things not related to SARS-CoV-2 and not related to COVID-19. These are other causes of death. And what we actually, um, you know, I was just talking to a hematologist and oncologist in Austin about the concern that they they had when we hit our surge in the summer was that f- they had a, a significant drop in the number of new cancer diagnoses. And they're like, COVID's not curing cancer. You know, people are just not being able to see their doctors enough. We've used telemedicine and we've been able to innovate in fantastic ways. But there are things that we are just missing. Patients are not following up with their doctors. They're not able to make in-person visits. They're not going to hospitals on time and ERs and time for time-sensitive emergencies. And again, it's this impact of fear. You know, this the fear, the mind chewing on the fear of getting COVID also managing that fear is is causing people to die of other causes of death. So managing our healthcare system, as you can imagine, we if we have zero beds in an ICU, that's not zero beds for COVID patients. Mm -hmm. That's zero beds for anyone. Mm. That means the healthcare and our ability to take care of any patient that comes into the hospital will be compromised. Dan, did you want to add to that? Yeah, actually, I mean, a quick, I honestly don't remember if I told this anecdote the first time we chatted over the summer because it, it happened in the, the spring surge. But to give you an idea of what Natasha's talking about, so I had a, a patient come in, young guy, fairly healthy, mid-30s, who had what we would call a, a necrotizing fasciitis. Um, so he had an infection, probably like polymicrobial, had a bunch of different bugs in there, and it just kind of spread everywhere. And he got very sick. He got what we call septic and had septic shock. So his blood pressure was was terrible. And um, you know, we called the surgeons and started him on antibiotics and medicines for his blood pressure and stuff. And the surgeons took him to the operating room, and this guy died in the operating room. Mm. And it stuck with me because number one, he was a young man. Um, it shouldn't have happened. And two, because maybe if he had come in 72 hours before, he would have been, you know, a bottle of a bottle of antibiotics and he goes home. Um, so, you know, that's the type of thing that we're talking about is, is these late presenters. And I'm sure Natasha can, would agree with this. I hear all the time, well, I didn't want to come in because COVID. 
and you know you mm-hmm. check a blood level and they've got a high troponin and they had a heart attack or, or whatever it is. So that's what we mean when we're talking about excess deaths. It's it's people we don't have a bed for, and it's people who are worried rightfully about COVID and and um, you know don't realize that the the hospital is taking every every possible measure to keep them safe when they're here. Um, you know, we're, we're limiting visiting hours. You know, there's, there's one patient. Um, sometimes there's no patients if the outbreak's bad enough. So, you know, that's, that's what we mean when we talk about excess deaths is this, this 35-year-old kid who shouldn't have died and should have got a bottle of antibiotics at CVS and now he's dead. One of the ICU doctors here uh, was actually speaking about her experience in the ICU in Austin. and. Uh, she compared it to feeling like a house fire. And it really resonated with me because I think this is a really important analogy for people to think about. Thinking about a house fire in your house when you're all in your house, uh, your whole family, all your loved ones is devastating. Uh, There are few things that could be worse than that, I think, in the world. And COVID can become like that to your family. It can cause immense suffering. Uh, it, it can turn your family and the people that you love into what we're seeing in our ERs and ICUs, which is a room full of people suffering. And many of them may not survive. And, you know, like there's, there's not a, an unlikely chance that that could happen. And yes, you may be 18 and you may be 20 and you may think to yourself, hey, I don't really have a high risk of having a bad consequence of this. But you don't want to be the one who brings that match home mm. and lights the fire. And you're all we're all carrying matches. Every single one of us is a walking matchstick right now. And you don't want to light your matchstick. You want to you got to get that vaccine. You want to cover up that matchstick so it can't catch on fire. So when you come home, you're not the one bringing that home because the truth is about this virus is it doesn't hit home until it hits home. But you don't want it to hit your home because it can devastate your entire family. Thank you both for being here today. Where can we find you online? <laughs> um, I'm on Instagram, just Natasha Kathuria, MD. That's my name, and that's where I'm at. Okay. At DBarkoff on Twitter is the easiest way to find me. Cool. And you can find me on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to Dr. Kathuria and Dr. Barkoff for having this conversation, and thanks to all of you at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.